Welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron Salvato, and today, Brian Higgins and I are going to explore the way that postmodern thinking is currently affecting young people. Brian and I have a huge heart for young people. We're two former youth pastors, and we believe that young people, they're not just the future of the church, they're the present. If you're a young person between the middle school and college age listening to this podcast, hey, we appreciate you and we're glad that you're here. One of the biggest problems that we've seen about postmodern philosophy is its assault on the concept of objective truth. The assertion that everybody can have their own truth, no matter what it is, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. But that's the problem. Lies do harm people. If you're handed a glass of poison and you're told that it's water, that's a lie that hurts you. And as people who believe in both the concept of God-given morality and the problem of sin, we understand that it's important to discuss ways how the concept of truth is starting to deteriorate in our postmodern society. Today on the show, Brian and I are going to watch some clips from a video back from 2017 where a guy is on a college campus trying to see how far young people have slipped into postmodernist thought. Then we're going to talk about what it means for the church. We hope this conversation challenges you and your thinking and helps you consider other points of view. As always, we're open to any feedback, whether that be encouragement or pushback. You can email us at goodlionnetwork at gmail.com or send a DM on Instagram to at goodlionpodcast. Thanks for listening, everyone, and enjoy the show. All right, so what we're going to do is we've got this video that we found on YouTube that is apparently an example of postmodernism on college campuses. So I think that could be interesting for us to take a look at. What do you think? Yeah, I think that postmodernism in part began as an academic movement. So it's interesting mm. to see how it's still interacting with the academic circle, which is also kind of strange to think about because I don't think of my time in college as I'm an academic now, you know? So it's this, <laughs> right. it's more taking a snapshot of a certain age group more than anything else. Right. Yeah. This video is from 2017. And yeah, I, I think I've seen a bit of this before back when I was doing youth ministry, but let's just revisit it and then we'll, we'll share our thoughts on it. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington find out. I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. It, you guys obviously can't see the video because this is a audio element. There's no visual element to it. You get how podcasts work. <laughs> yeah, you understand. Brian and I were just watching the video, though. And yeah, it's a guy who's very obviously a white man. He's not Asian. He's not a woman. And he's going around and saying, hey, if I told you I was this, how would you respond? 
And like, I feel like the way that the students are responding is very much in line with kind of that classic idea of postmodernism that we've been talking about. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's no ground that they're standing on from which they're trying to say, you know, the one guy was asking, how did you arrive at that conclusion? But it doesn't sound like he's trying to say your conclusion is incorrect. It's more like, show me what your process was so that I can better understand you. And even one of those girls flat out said, good for you, be who you are. The assumption being, I can't know who you are, only you can tell me who you are. Right. And I feel like I feel like the motivation for thinking this way and embracing this kind of mentality in in the people's minds who hold it, it comes from this place of like, I want to be accepting of other people. I don't want to hurt other people's feelings. I don't want to be rude and I don't want to cause issues or stir up trouble. So I just want I just want everyone to just be whoever they want to be. But it's definitely problematic I think to some people, it just it, it doesn't seem like that far of a stretch. It doesn't seem like it's that big of a concession, but it's like, I don't know. It's like if, if we want truth to be a thing that's real and exists, we have to have some fundamental baselines we can agree on. Right. Yeah. And the one that was interesting to me in those two examples, let's leave someone who is a man saying, what would you do if I said I was a woman? Let's leave the transgender issue kind of on the side for a moment. The one that was really interesting to me was everyone seemed more hesitant to say, I can sign off on you're a race that you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one was really interesting because there, there was this understanding kind of laying underneath everything of like, Mm -hmm. you don't get to cross those lines like they kind of wanted to say that like you can't just right. become another race like you can't take on all of the things that being part of that ethnic community means just because you want them right you know like that one it was interesting seeing how there was there was this clear I don't want to say that this is okay, but I also have no ability to say that it's not okay. I can only just be made slightly uncomfortable by it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's more to the video. Let's let's see what else happens. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? I wouldn't believe that immediately. I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I just feel like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be a okay thing. So yeah, th- that 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 section was interesting to me because the way that these kids are thinking is not how I grew up thinking. So it's interesting to see people in their early 20s thinking this way. I know that one video isn't evidence that every single, you know, young 20-something person thinks this way, but I think enough of them do in in different elements in different ways 
that it, that it is something that pastors and leaders should be thinking of. You know, like the way that postmodernism has crept in. The thing, one thing I noticed when watching was there was a certain level of uncomfortableness because it's almost like you could see that in their hearts, you could see that in their hearts, they were like, okay, I know that this is kind of wrong <laughs> for a grown man in his late thirties to like enroll in a third grade class because he wants to identify as a you know first grader or whatever. They're like, yeah, like that would be problematic. But because there's a camera on them and there's an audience watching, it's like they want to appear. At least this is I'm, I'm judging them. I, I am admitting that I'm judging them right now. Based on what I saw of the footage, it seemed like the ones who were uncomfortable just didn't want to appear as not being tolerant in some way. And so their answer was just kind of like, yeah, like you do you like who am I to judge? Right. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you could see the gears spinning in their minds, kind of thinking through, I don't like this. I don't think this makes sense. But it seemed like more than anything, there was just a discomfort with telling someone no. Hmm. There was a discomfort around the idea of, I need to put some kind of limit on what you're capable of doing, Hmm. which was really interesting that the, I think the last person that was in that video even use the criteria of as long as you're not hurting anyone and as long as you're not hindering society, which Mm. are super broad in terms of what that could actually mean. So it's not like he's afraid to have some kind of limit on what people should or should not be allowed to do. But when I actually have to present you with here is the limit, here is the Mm. moment where you're not allowed to do that. As soon as that comes up, it seems like there's this really big discomfort with telling someone where that line should be. Yeah, absolutely. I I think what has been interesting and what I have noticed in the past few years especially is that the list of things that get a free pass as far as postmodern thinking goes, it's not universal. And what I mean by that is there are views that are held by, by Christians and, and other religions where quite often if you hold that view and you state it publicly, people will just say, oh, well, no, you're wrong. Like that is false. Like that is not the facts. Right. Or, or you know, like, oh, your your view, you know, you viewing God in this way or you you having a concept of sin. Like that's just that's just wrong. Like you're a bad person for holding that view and that's intolerant. It's almost like, you know, back when we were growing up, it was the legalism was on the side of conservative Christians where we were the ones going around calling everybody, oh, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And now it's like the society slipped the script where it's like everything is open season. You know, it's like you can be anything you want, you can do anything you want, but if you hold to certain views about morality or God or anything like that, people will look at you and just be like, oh, no, like you're... (laughs) I will, I will tell you straight up to your face, like those are bad views to, for you to have. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Is that a stretch? Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. It seems like the only thing that will not be tolerated is the idea of intolerance. As hmm. soon as you are willing to put a limit and to say this is where you reach something unacceptable, this is where you reach something inappropriate. In the Christian worldview, this is where you reach sin. This is where you violate the order God has designed all things to operate within. Once you put that out there, it's like, well, that's easy. Like, oh, well, we don't like being told no. So being told no is something you can't 
do, which is kind of a, a mind pretzel to be put in. Of like, right, the right. only we have to tell you that you are bad for telling us that we are bad. Can, can you think of any specific ways that this played out when you were doing youth ministry? I, I know I can think of a few, but, but what about you? What, like postmodern thinking where you've got kids in your youth group who are basically like, oh yeah, like this is fine. Like, why are we, why are we so bent out of shape about this thing? Like, why is my pastor saying this is a sin? Yeah, I think there were a lot of questions regarding that idea of why do we consider this to be a sin? There was mm-hmm. a lot of questions around what kind of content you're consuming. I don't know if that was necessarily postmodern thinking, though. I, I think the biggest place the question came up was with sexual ethics and yeah. what yeah. should be considered acceptable and what shouldn't be. And what was interesting was we definitely had students that were asking particularly about homosexuality yeah, because of temptations and attractions they had. Like we definitely had some of that. Way more of those questions, though, were coming from students that didn't want to have to hold a fundamentalist view in the public square. Hmm. What do you mean by that? I feel like more of the questions we got about why is homosexuality wrong? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? However, the question was phrased. More of those questions in the youth group that I was leading were coming from the perspective of before I go out in public and tell people what I believe the Bible says, I want to make sure I'm really actually right about this. Like it wasn't coming often from a place of these are attractions that I'm feeling. I want to know what the Bible says about what I should do with these attractions. You know, it Mm. it wasn't that most of the time. Mm. Most of the time it was, I feel like from what I hear everywhere else, we're unloving and intolerant. Why do we even believe this? Like, why why do we even hang on to this view? Why can't we just be cooler? You know, in a lot of ways, that kind of felt like that was where the questions were driving. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I'm trying to think of ways that I've observed it in just youth ministry and ministry in general. The homosexuality one is definitely a big one. And I see that like in my own students, it's it. I see it coming from a place of not just like my students being like, oh yeah, we love sin and we want to support sin. It's coming from a place of like, they know actual real live gay kids who like they've heard people in their families or in their church talk about gay people in a very negative way. And then they actually meet some and they're like, Whoa, these are real people with feelings and lives. And they're just trying to like live their life and they don't even know about God. So like, it's not like they're waking up in the morning going, how can I sin against my creator? Um, and so, and then they don't seem like super evil people. Like they don't seem like they wake up every morning and say, how could I destroy this nation? You know, they're not doing that. Right. So so then there's a compassion that comes, which is understandable, where it's like, whoa, maybe we've mistreated these people, which I would agree the church has historically. But then from there, it's looking at what scripture says about sexuality and then going, well, who am I to say? Like, And we see the same thing with straight sin. Like, I, I saw many kids also kind of take this attitude of like, yeah, like, why is it such a big deal to sleep around? You know, straight kids. Like, why? Like, I love my boyfriend. I love my girlfriend. You know, I I had kids who had friends, you know, who were not Christians, you know, and and they're, they're sleeping together and that sort of thing. And they would say to me like, yeah, I mean like, why is it that big a deal? Like they love each other. It's like, there's consent there. Like, who are we to judge? And, and it's, it's understandable why they feel that way. Like, it's kind of like when you as a kid 
there's like cookies on the counter and you're like, I want the cookies. And your parents are like, it's not time for the cookies. Like, I know you, I know if you eat cookies now, you're going to get a mad stomach ache. Like I've got dinner prepared. We got to eat dinner first and then there's cookies. But as a kid, you're like, that's stupid. Like, why are, why do these rules exist? That's so like just completely asinine and ridiculous. Like I'm just going to go and eat a bunch of cookies. It's a terrible analogy, <laughs> but like it doesn't really it, translate exactly to what we're talking about. But it's that thinking of like, why does God have so many rules? And that is an eternal struggle that a lot of Christians have where it's like they want to love God. They want to follow God, but they look at his laws and his rules and they're just, it's just like, ah, man, like, I don't know if I actually can believe that God would have these kind of guidelines because because we look at God's rules and we just think it's like, oh, God's personal preference. Like we're, we're not factoring yeah. in the fact mm-hmm. that, that God knows about sin and he knows that like sin is not just like a list of do's and don'ts. And if you don't, if you do the don'ts and you've, you've broken God's commandments, it's literally like this dark destructive force that is trying to corrupt creation and it's trying to steal God's family away from him. It's trying to pervert our minds and all that stuff. And so I think that's just where the postmodern thinking comes in, where it's just kind of like, I mean, God loves me. I'm saved. Like, I just need to be a good person. And, and I, I sh- as a Christian, I shouldn't judge anybody because who it's, it's God's role to judge, not me, you know? Yeah, one one analogy that I used to use for this, the idea of like God's laws oftentimes feel very arbitrary and they feel like Mm. they just kind of were made up was remember when you were a kid and your mom would tell you to clean your room and then you Mm. wouldn't do it. And then she would be like, how am I ever going to trust you to drive a car? And you'd be like, what? (laughs) Like the skills for cleaning your room and the skills for driving a car are two completely different things. And sometimes that's how we look at God's commands of God's desire for sexual ethics or God's desire for being honest with one another or God's desire for us not being greedy don't always feel inherently linked to Mm. living the most satisfying human life. Right. You know, a lot of times it feels like they're just these completely unrelated things, kind of like, you know, clean your room and we'll go for ice cream later. Right. It's like the the reward you get is not inherently tied to the task you need to perform. Right. Whereas when I look at the commands of God, one of the things that I start to see more and more is how linked the rewards actually are to the commands. Mm. That it's, it's not just mm. like if you clean your room, I'll buy you a nice thing. It's the spiritual cleaning of your room, so to speak is what produces the good thing you receive down the line. And that good thing we receive is a, a deepened connection with God, a it, more holy shaped character to be like him. It's almost like you're like, uh, God, I want a, I want a nice car. Give me a nice car. And God's like, no, I'm not going to give that to you, but come work with me. Like I've got some parts. I've got some tools. Like we're going to build something. And you're like, oh, I don't want to build something. That sounds like a lot of work. And, and you're like working with him in the garage and like, ah, what am I doing? Like, I'm just screwing mm-hmm. random things together. And then at the end of like weeks of work, you're like, oh, we just built a car together. Like, yeah, exactly. I wanted that. I just wanted him to give it to me. What he wanted to do was not just to give it to me. He wanted to work it out in me. He wanted to teach me the process of what it actually takes to make that thing, you know? 
Yeah. And, and you so can, you can apply this analogy to like really anything, you know? Yeah. And, and within that analogy, your work habits really matter because God cares what kind of car you drive. Right. You know, your work habits aren't just like, you know, he's not just like the old grumpy mechanic who's like, I'll be here at 545. Bring the bagels. You know, like he's not just <laughs> doing that because he's grumpy and has his preferences. He wants you to drive the best car. And so mm. he wants to help you build the car that has the perfect design. And yeah. when we deviate from the perfect design, we end up building a lesser car that's more dangerous to ourselves. Yeah, that's another factor is God wants the safe car, right? Like he knows mm-hmm. what the, the safe one is, where it's like, it's going to be fast, it's going to be efficient. But if you like... If you get in an accident, which in the Christian life, we're, we're, we're getting super metaphorical right now. I hope you're tracking great. with us. Um, but yeah, in the Christian life, like there will be collisions, there will be accidents. That's just living in a fallen world. And if you're not protected, if you haven't built a spiritual life around you, you're going to be open to all sorts of destruction that can come from those collisions. One other thing that I'd want to touch on with the whole postmodern thinking is I really do feel like a lot of Christians practice postmodern thinking. I don't want to just pick on college kids. Like a lot mm-hmm. of Christians practice postmodern thinking when it comes to sin. And the way it plays out in my mind is kind of like it goes all the way back to the snake in the garden who's like, you know, who did God really say that? Like, who's to say? I mean, it's kind of a gray area, isn't it? We, we do this all the time with sin. We've talked about it with sexuality. You know, one thing I struggled with when I had youth was drugs. Like they, some of my kids dabbled into drugs. Um, you know, obviously like marijuana, you know, that's a debatable issue. I know where I stand on it. But at the time, you know, whether or not like my kids had an opinion on whether or not it should be legal or not. The reality was like at the time, at their current age as minors, it was illegal, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but that's where the postmodern thinking comes in where it's like, oh man, you know, it's, it's just, you know, God made it. It's a plant. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, but it is illegal. Now I can pick on my kids and, and thankfully a lot, a lot of the ones that struggle with this have grown out of that and are doing a lot better in that area. But I did it too. Like when I was in high school, it wasn't weed, but like, I'll just be honest. Here's my postmodern thinking. I pirated music. Like, I don't know if you did, but like everybody was doing it. It was like, we knew to go into the store, to go into Walmart and like shoplift a bunch of CDs was wrong. But there was like this weird gray area where it was like, oh, but like my friend has 10,000 songs on his iPod. And if he plugs it into my computer, he can give those songs to me. And there's websites where I can go and download those songs. And it was like the whole time I was doing it in the back of my mind, I was like, this feels kind of wrong. The Bible says don't steal. But I just kept thinking postmodern where it was like, eh, who's to say? Like, what's right? What's wrong here? I don't know. It's kind of a gray area. I mean, am I misclassifying that as postmodern thinking? Is that too simplistic? I don't think you're misclassifying it, especially if the motivation behind it was who's really to say if it's wrong. Yeah, you know, that's kind that, of what it that I think is the core of postmodernism. And like that example with pirated music, it, it wasn't people were saying it's wrong and I don't care. Although sometimes I think who's to say what's wrong is often a guise for it's wrong, but I don't care. Yeah, I, I think... Yeah. 
in my Wait, own did, life. Did, did, did you did you pirate music, Brian? Do you want to go on the record? Not a ton. I just wasn't good <laughs> enough at it. But I definitely okay. had illegally downloaded music, like uh, <laughs> a fairly. I had some of it, and I had friends that gave me some of it. And then my dad linked his credit card to iTunes. <laughs> and then it was just like his money, not mine. And so I was just <laughs> like, I can buy it as long as it, like we never have a conversation about how much music I bought. So I definitely did a lot more of that. I, I feel um, like one of the mental one of the mental loopholes I jumped through was I was like, so basically it's just like my friend is letting me borrow his CD. And as long as we're never listening to the same music at the same time, <laughs> it's okay. It's, you know, it's okay. It's the same thing. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it was something I struggled with. And I, I got rid of all my pirated stuff. The music I really struggled with, literally for a long time, it was like a big guilty thing for me where I felt convicted from the spirit that I should just delete all of my pirated music. And I was struggling. Like it was the one thing I couldn't give up. And then Spotify came out and I was just like, oh, <laughs> Well, that solves that problem. Yeah, <laughs> I will pay ten dollars a month as penance for my sins. But I mean, I'm kind of making light of it. But I, I do like I look back on it, and if I could go back in time and tell myself, I'd be like, dude, like this is wrong. Like what you are doing is wrong. But you're trying to convince yourself it's not. I'm just trying to use myself as an example because I think every generation is going to face things like this, where it's like we have the choice to say this is wrong, but the culture has accepted it so much that we're just kind of shrug our shoulders and just be like, eh, who's to say? I like that idea of we we know it's wrong, but something in culture is telling us it's fine, so we go for it anyway. Mm. I think an example in my own life is, and this is like a, a strange example, maybe. It's not something that like before today I would have thought of as I was sinning as I was doing this. But back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, there was a prevalent style of ministry of be a truth teller yell at your people be tough on others like don't oh, oh you mean the mark driscoll style yeah i was gonna keep him out of it but yeah <laughs> the mark driscoll style yeah absolutely that's who i was trying i'm glad you picked up on it and i remember i was influenced by a lot of his stuff and by other teachers like him and i became a jerk of a bible teacher no. i I you? was. I can't yeah. imagine Jerk Higgins. Oh, he's there. See, I he's listened to a there. ton of Driscoll, but I never crossed over to the. I was. I was like, I like him, but I don't like his methodology. I'm gonna take the truth he says and say it nicely. Yeah, I didn't do the nice part. I, I was told by a pastor at the church that I grew up in before I became a pastor. He he pulled me aside one day. And he said, the Bible says you should speak the truth in love. You're really good at one of those. <laughs> and it, it still kind of rattles in my mind. And so, like, I believe that when I went up to what's, teach the what, Bible. What's the meanest thing you ever said from the stage? I can't think of, like, a specific thing. But, like, mm. I would often bring it back to, like, the, the thrust of the application, whatever it would be, mm. would kind of end with... Because if you don't do this, it shows you're not serious about being a Christian. And maybe you're mm. not serious mm. about being a Christian because you're not. You know, like mm. it would it would kind of like routinely come back to, look, you want to be a Christian? Then just do this already. Like, just be better. 
and sort of producing in your people like a fear of like, am I really saved or not? Instead of the assurance. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And and I just kind of went up with this mentality of like, I see this culture telling me this is a helpful thing to do for people or this is Hmm. an acceptable thing to do. And I went up and I taught things that hurt people. And I went Mm. up and I was actively like it made me feel like I was a good teacher because I was following these examples. Mm. But I was using the pulpit selfishly. I was Mm. using ministry selfishly. I Mm. was focused on my own desire to feel like I fit in with this group that I wasn't around even rather than trying to be loving. And if sin is simply missing the mark of what God intended it to be, then I was sinning. I I was Mm. going up in the wrong headspace and with the wrong motive. But I saw this culture showing me, oh, yeah, this is okay. And I was like, oh, yeah, like there's a whole bunch of different ways to do this. But, Mm. you know, it's okay. My culture Mm. tells me this is fine. Mm. Yeah, that's something that I feel like any one of us can fall into in in vastly different ways. But it's super easy to look at what other churches and pastors are doing and just imitate them. And I think Driscoll, for all of his faults, I think he did a lot of good as well in different areas. But I definitely think mm-hmm. that this this was an area where there was some a lot of damage caused and 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 people I saw, you know, young youth pastors my age when I first started out kind of imitating that style. And I know kids who personally have been hurt by that kind of style. So I think it's huge that you're like saying that, like, that was something that you struggle with and that you have since grown out of. And I I think we'd want to encourage anybody to grow out of that. Maybe you're even listening and maybe that's something that you're struggling with. I think one thing I want to double down on this, and this touches back on postmodernism, never compromise the truth. Always tell people the truth. If you see Mm -hmm. somebody walking off a cliff and you're afraid that you're going to hurt their feelings if you tell them, you're doing them no favors by letting them walk off that cliff. Like, I don't want people to coddle me into allowing me to continue to sin because I I love God and I don't want anybody to hold my hand and just gently lead me along the path of sin. But on the flip side of it, when we look at the model of Jesus, we see somebody who passionately hates sin with the fury of like a million hot suns and yet fiercely loves sinners with like just as much. It's like this, it's this perfect balance that he strikes. You know, we talked about it before, but it's like, how do you get the nickname friend of the prostitutes and tax collectors if you're going around yelling at them? Like, so it's like people try to make it so complicated. I feel like where it's like, they see you loving and they're like, you need to be more truthful. And it's like, well, give me the time and space to love this person to the point where they will hear the truth. That takes a lot more time and effort than spending a weekend on a Saturday picketing them or yelling at them on the street. You know, I, I don't regret teaching true things. The Bible says I don't Mm. regret Mm calling sin, sin. Like I I look back on the things that I called out and pointed out and it's like, I, I stand by those things. I, Mm. I stand by the truth of what I see in the Bible. I stand by the Bible being willing to call things wrong and to call things sin and to ask sinners to repent. What I regret is the tone in which I did it. Because one, one of the things that I've really come to see is the best ministry is done in relationship. And so 
a big part of what needs to happen is the relationship needs to be developed. The relationship Mm -hmm. needs to be honed and cultivated and cared for and matured. And the way that I would just kind of go at people, the way that I would focus on being a truth teller first and foremost, and my my first and only allegiance is to the truth meant that I had no allegiance to building relationship. Mm. And if my first allegiance is really to Jesus and to his truth and his ways, Mm. then I should be using his ways as I try to bring the truth to people. And the way that Jesus brought the truth to people was not with distant declaration, but was with I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. I will Mm. come near to you. I will develop relationship with you. I will show you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace so that you're ready to listen to me when I show you what's wrong. It's interesting. Like you, you see this progression of severity with Jesus with how he talks. With the crowds, it's almost like this very non-confrontational, invitational aspect where he is talking to crowds of people and trying to paint for them a picture of what the kingdom of God is like, like what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to have forgiveness, what it means to like live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, like this new vision, this new idea of like this new humanity, like how to be a Christ follower. And then once you actually become a disciple, like there's points where Jesus is talking to the 12, where he is like a little bit more sarcastic, a little bit Mm -hmm. more harsh. Like he calls them out on their stupidity. You know, he, he doesn't coddle Peter uh, or James or John, you know, when they're like, Oh, let's, let's, let's burn down the village. You know, (laughs) let's call down the fire from heaven. Like he, he's, but then like, there's this love and this friendship. Like they listen to Jesus because Jesus has proven to them like who he is to them. It's like, I'm sure that you you can think of like mentors in your life where like they will call you a knucklehead, but you actually love it because you're like, I know this person has my best intentions and they care about me. So when they say, hey, idiot, what are you doing, man? Cut that out. It's not like taken as like, it's not a stranger. Like if a stranger does that, you're like, what the heck? Who is this person? Like, what are they? Why are they saying this to me? But if it's like your deep friend, your mentor that you look up to, I know for me, like anytime a mentor that I respect calls me out, I am, I am like, my ears are open. I'm like, please tell me how I'm screwing up. Like, please, I need that, man. So you've got that. And then you get to like the Pharisees. And then that's like where there's like this, this huge level of severity where, because Jesus is looking at them and he's like, you guys were supposed to be the disciples. Like you, the Pharisees, mm-hmm. like you were the ones you're, you've spent your whole life trying to follow God, trying to do the right things, but you perverted my entire plan for Israel, for salvation, for the Messiah, for, for the law. Like you, you took everything and you twisted it. And so Jesus is actually pretty, pretty harsh with that crowd. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. One of the thoughts that I had going back to the postmodernism video that we were listening to and and responding to. We should finish that in a second. Yeah. One thing that I admire in the group that is 
being postmodern, for some of them, I should say. There's a few responses that are questions leading to conversation. You know, the, the response of just like, hey, you do you. Like that, I think, has a lot of dangers to it. Questions like, how did you arrive at that conclusion? Tell me more about yourself. Like those kinds of relationship building questions. I think those are really helpful. I think those are really good first responses because a lot of times when we have these kind of exercises, we listen to someone's first question as if it is the most important thing that they wanted to say, as opposed to being part of a progression. Whereas think about Jesus with the woman at the well. Jesus begins with, hey, do you mind giving me something to drink? And the woman's response is to feel honored because in that culture, if somebody asked you for something, it was because you valued them. You believed that they were capable of giving that thing to you. That wasn't like a rude thing that Jesus was doing. That was giving her a place of value and rank and position. That was a way of saying, I see you and care about you. That's where he began. He didn't begin with, you know, I know that you're broken and I need this to be changed. Like he didn't begin with, are you willing to admit today that you're a sinner so that you can go to heaven if you die? Like he didn't (laughs) do any of that. He began in a very different place. And I think that there's real value in, you know, maybe some of us are hearing that video and we're hearing these very postmodern responses. And our desire is to immediately call them out and be like, you're just so washed away in this progressive agenda. And if that's where you begin, that is going to be the only thing you're going to get to say. And it's going to come in a way where because it's not in relationship, it will not be valued as much. Mm. Whereas if we're willing to begin with, I need to build a relationship so that I can share the truth. Maybe that's not the route that we want to take. It's the route our culture is demanding that we take if we're actually going to be able to share the truth effectively. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that. And I love how you tied in the story of the woman at the well. I, I think I think that might actually apply to our conversation here because so I think of the story of the woman at the well. And one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, how Jesus responds to the woman. Right. The, the, the woman is basically what does she say? I perceive you are a prophet. Jesus is at the well and he talks to the woman and there's this whole thing about, hey, like, give me a drink, you know, draw the water. And then he says to her, go and call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. And then he responds, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And I feel like the the way that I've heard this taught is like, yeah, Jesus, you tell her like, this is a loose woman like this, you know, she's in sin. She's sleeping around with all these other dudes. And Jesus just calls her out on her sin, points it out right there. And it was interesting because I was listening at the CGN conference to uh, Gary Brashear's workshop, and he was talking about how when he was living, I think, in the Philippines, doing ministry out there, he was talking to a Filipino pastor about this passage, and he was kind of talking about it that way. Like, yeah, this is a part of the passage that shows that Jesus can reach the worst of the worst sinner. And the pastor pointed out to him, he's like, hey, like, actually, like, I know from your culture, like, that's the interpretation you guys take, but the way that we look at it here, and honestly, I think it's more biblical, is in that culture, why would a woman have five husbands? Is it because she was choosing those husbands? Like, is she the one leaving? Is she the one divorcing? At that time, 
in that culture, women didn't have that power. This was a woman who like probably according to the cultural context, she was being left by men. Like men were marrying her. And then after a few years, you know, deciding, oh, I'm going to find someone younger. I'm going to find someone cuter. I'm not satisfied with this woman. And so they would divorce her and leave her. And, and, and so she was so desperate for acceptance and so desperate for love that she was willing to even live with a man that wasn't her husband because this was somebody who was a victim. And it like blew Gary's mind at the time. He's like, oh, I'd never thought of it that way. And I think after hearing that, I, I think that's that's probably a more faithful interpretation when you think about the culture. I don't think Jesus was trying to own this woman on her sin. I think he was trying to let her know that he had insight into her brokenness in life that it, it that it blew her away. Like, oh, man, you must be a prophet. Like, how did you know those things about me? Like, she, she's probably this woman who had a lot of this pain and baggage and Jesus is addressing it. He's speaking into it. And I think that is the mentality we need to have when we're encountering postmodern people. Not like, how can I how can I point out their sin? How can I just own them on the street and point out their postmodernism and just show them how their way of thinking is foolish? I, th I think we need to allow the Holy Spirit to help us understand why does this person think this way? Like, why have they allowed the enemy to influence them in such a way where they're they're thinking in this way where there's no objective truth? And then how can I how can I lead them to the reality that truth exists? I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a, a good parallel there, but yeah, uh, no, I, I yeah. think it is. I mean, I I'm still partially mind blown by that interpretation because I yeah, also I have never heard that before. But that makes so much sense. It does in the culture. Given it's the like culture in that time, yeah, the women didn't divorce the men back then. It yeah, was the they guys. wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, even thinking you're going further back into antiquity if you go back to Genesis with Hagar. Mm. But like her being sent away is like the deepest level of homelessness because mm. there was so little opportunity for women back in, in the biblical culture. Even think about Esther. Like, what's your hope for making this okay? Get married. Like that was <laughs> that was her only chance. Yes, and, and I, I love how the way that story ends is with Jesus saying, hey, you're thirsty. Let me lead you to the water where you'll never thirst again. There's this broken person. And according to this interpretation that Gary's laid out that I, I think is a really good one, you know, she's she's thirsting for love. She's thirsting for acceptance. She's trying to find that in men because men have left her. And Jesus is basically inviting her into a world where you will have the acceptance that you thirst for. You will have the love that you thirst for, but it's not going to come from a bunch of random dudes. It's going to come from me, from Christ. So, and I, I think that's the mentality we need to go into in these postmodern conversations is what are people thirsting for? Like, what are they after? How can we lead them to that well, the, the well of Christ? Yeah, I love that idea of thinking through what is it that you're thirsting for? Because a lot of times we hear somebody's worldview, like let's say you're trying to evangelize to somebody, you'll probably ask them about how they view the world and you'll hear about their system and then you'll think my system it now needs to battle their system hmm. and we yeah. will see which system is superior. <laughs> and for the person who's trying to prove Christianity correct, we run to the facts that make us feel like, ah, oh, your system is illogical. So you can't believe that system anymore. You should try mine on for size. Like that's kind of where we often end up going 
in evangelism, instead of thinking, how do I defeat your system? I think it's helpful to ask, what are you getting out of your system? Mm. Like, what is it that it's fulfilling in you? Because like this woman, she was just looking for acceptance. She was just looking for a place to call home. She was looking for security. And she was willing to lower standards and bounce around to make that happen. You know, like I, I can see how Jesus is doing more than saying you're wrong. He's saying, here's what you're really craving. Let me show you how I fulfill that. And mm. so when I think about talking with people who are, are postmodern in their thinking, it's not about how do I show you your thinking is illogical. And if I yeah. show you your thinking is illogical, then you'll trust my system more. It's right. what are you gaining from the specific things you're not like that you're bending on. What are you gaining from not imposing systems on anyone else? You know, you Mm. often, I think people turn to postmodernism because they want to be accepting. They want Mm. to be helpful to people. They want to promote an environment where people can feel truly themselves rather than just saying your system is stupid. I don't like it. You're wrong. Like instead of just doing that and then hoping that they're like, Oh, I guess I am stupid. (laughs) I'll follow Jesus now. Like that conversation has never happened. Like instead of it. Yeah. I had never been called stupid before, man. If only someone had done this sooner. (laughs) If instead of going down that route, we begin to learn how to say, Okay, so what you really care about is people being themselves. Hmm. Well, we believe that Jesus is the one that made us. Jesus is the one that knows us inside and out. And Hmm. only in relationship with him can we be truly ourselves. Yeah, Yeah. He's the one that knows us better than we do. He's like, how often do you just look inwardly to try to figure out what you're feeling and you can't figure it out? Hmm. You know? Jesus knows perfectly. Jesus knows 100% the kind of person you're supposed to be in relationship with him. We become who we're supposed to be. We are truest to ourselves when we live life with Jesus because he's the one that knows the true us. Hmm. Something like that is going to go so much further than just telling someone your system is stupid and mine is better. It's learning to figure out how to say, What do you believe you're getting from your system? Now let me show you how Jesus gives you that in a whole different level. Right. Yeah. And I I feel like we can easily, and a lot of people do, we can, we can make fun of these college kids in this video where it's like, okay, a white guy is saying, what would you do if I said I was Asian? And they're like, oh yeah, you just do you. It's, it's easy to make fun of that. It's easy to laugh at them. I want to, I want to honor the intention behind their postmodern thinking, which is they want to be kind and they've been taught that that's the way to be kind. And so as a Christian, I'm not upset that they want to be kind. I'm not infuriated that they want to love people and they want to give people space to be who they are. That doesn't upset me. The thing that is worrisome is the methodology they're taking to get there. And I would like to show people that you can, you can hold on to truth and stand firm on truth and hold to convictions about reality, about things like gender or, you know, racism or sexuality or whatever. Like you can, you can hold to what the Bible says about those things 
and not compromise with going the way of the culture without being a jerk. Like you can still be kind and hold to truth. You can still be compassionate. You can still show empathy. That's a big divide in our culture right now because you ha- it's it's the loudest voices that get the most attention. So you've got like on one side, people who are very loud and activist and and passive aggressive and, and shouting about tolerance and acceptance and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And then on the other side, you've got some very loud and abrasive Christians where it's all about, let's, we just need to say the truth. We don't care who it offends, you know, who cares? You know, it's the truth. And if you don't believe it, you're going to hell and you don't have to be either one of those things. Like you can hold to the tension of the truth while also holding to the tension of love. It's very possible. And again, we keep saying it over and over again on this show, but Jesus is our model on how to do it. Read the gospels, study him, look at Paul, look at the disciples, look at how they carry themselves with the truth and love. It's all there. It's all super evident in the New Testament. All right, let's continue on in this video and see if there's anything else worth talking about in here. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? (laughs) Because you're not. (laughs) No, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. (laughs) So you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that. Don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. Okay, wait, I just want to stop really quick and just interject this. I think it's super interesting that the first girl, you know, who's been postmodern throughout the entire video, it's the same group of people that he's asking, is like, okay, I would not be fine with you saying that you're taller than you are. Why? Because I can clearly see that truth evidently in front of me. Like, I know how tall something is. You're not that. I think it's interesting that height is apparently the deal breaker, but there's other things that, like race and gender, that society has convinced us are on such of a spectrum that there can't be any factuality to those things anymore. And it's just up to whatever you want to be. And I I would wonder, you know, is height (laughs) something 50 years from now where it's like, that's going to, there's, there's going to be height theory, you know? Yeah. It's something where I think no one really views height as a fundamental part of their identity. Maybe some people do. I know like some short people that are like, yeah, I'm the short guy. And like, (laughs) There are some tall people who are like, I'm a giant and it's like part of who they are. But yeah. it's not the most important thing about how a person views themselves. So I, I think that first person saying no, it was kind of like, well, that's just silly for you to not tell the truth about that. Well, and I you know, think, it, I think a, big, a big factor of it might be that there's no politics in height. There's politics yeah, involved in race true. and gender. Very, mm-hmm. They're very touchy issues. But yeah, no one's height. oppressing the tall, except for maybe <laughs> like United Airlines. I'd say the tall oppress the short sometimes in middle school, at least the bullies. But yeah, that's anyway, definitely true. But let's not get political. But anyway, yeah. It, but then it was interesting when it got down to, she, you know, it's like, OK, I definitely disagree with this. Well, would you would you tell someone that they're wrong? And it's like, well, well, no, I wouldn't do that. And, and, and that's for the one, interesting piece to me. Yeah. And for one person, it went back to you believing that you're taller than you are isn't hurting anyone. Right. 
So why would I bother doing this if you're not hurting anyone? Why would I bother going out of my way to call you wrong if your wrongness doesn't seem to have a major impact? And to some extent, like I actually do get this line of thinking because let me just ask you, Brian, how many times are you on Facebook and you see somebody post something with a clearly wrong opinion about the world? <laughs> do you every time you see that go out of your way to tell them that they're wrong? Or, or a lot of times uh, it's just kind of like, eh, I'm just going to let them be crazy. <laughs> so I, your first question, how often do you see wrong opinions on Facebook is also just a question of how often do you open Facebook? Oh, smart man. Because the answer is all of the times that I open it. <laughs> You're and about to say that you you don't open Facebook anymore, but no, no I still do. But I always feel bad afterwards. So <laughs> like you need I'm a shower. It, yeah, I'm doing it less and less. But yeah, every time, like I have to be like really fired up if it's going to be like we should talk about this. Because right. like I I cannot think of a single facebook comment section on like a let's talk about this topic that i felt went well by the end of it (laughs) it's always ended in disaster and it's never and my thinking is a lot of times if i see something something if it's like if somebody fell for like a celebrity death hoax then i'll probably comment on that and be like here's the link to snopes Right, because Eddie no Murphy's one, still alive. Because like, no one, no one's gonna judge you for that. No one's gonna, yeah, assume your politics or your theology. If anything, if anything, people are gonna be like, "Wow, that Brian guy, he he's really tapped into the Eddie Murphy market. Like he knew <laughs> that he doesn't fall for these hoaxes. Like it, right. I'll come out slightly better, but not in a political way. Right. But so, yeah, uh, yeah, I I often will feel like this conversation will not go anywhere. So I'm not going to begin this conversation. Yeah. So, so to some extent, like I want to give these kids the benefit of the doubt that it's not necessarily completely them just being like, I want everyone to be able to be wrong and I want to enable them. Sometimes it's literally just, I don't want to get involved in other, like I don't want to take the time out of my day. I don't want to deal with it to tell somebody they're not a tree. If they want to say they're a tree, then like go on and be a tree dude. But I've got to get to advanced calculus or whatever you take in college that's the one college class i didn't go all college Um, classes are just advanced calculus there's intro calculus in high school Mm. and then advanced in college Mm. let's keep uh let's keep going through this video so i can be a chinese woman (laughs) um sure but i can't be a six foot five chinese woman if you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? Yeah, interesting. What what do you think about the ending to that video there? Yeah, I, I'm very much just continually struck by the feeling that they're presenting of if it's not hurting someone, then I don't want to get in the way. And the other thing that I am interested in is the thoroughness of the belief seems to really matter in these responses. Are you talking about the guy who was like, yeah, if you were able to like passionately debate me on it and convince me, like I'd be really open to you 
being super tall, even though you're short and being a, another gender and race. Yeah. And even there was one moment where he was talking to that one girl and he used the phrasing, so I can be a Chinese woman. And she took a while to respond. And my my guess is that what she was reacting to was the idea of like you. The feeling I think for her was probably you can't just pick what you want, but you can be true to who you are. You know what I mean? Like Mm. a lot of times I feel like when I feel like I've heard a lot of conservative people talk particularly about the transgender issue and say when it comes to like what bathrooms people can or cannot use, Mm. they'll use the argument of, oh, well, I could just decide to be a woman today. And now I get to go into the women's locker room at the gym. Like the idea of I can flippantly choose what I want and then go do that. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be what these postmodernist college students are permitting. It doesn't seem like they're okay with you can wake up and decide to be whatever you want to be. Hmm. As much as they are okay with this concept of if you genuinely deep down actually think something different from what I see in you that I will make exception for. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you might be onto something there. I think I think it comes from a place of like wanting to respect somebody's journey, wanting to respect like, oh, this is a fully formed individual who's had their own struggles, their own stuff they've gone through. I don't understand why they are the way that they are, so I don't want to assume things about them. So I'm just going to give them the space to be themselves, and I just want them to feel accepted, and I just want them to feel loved. And again, like I see some of the good that comes from that perspective. The hard thing does come as a Christian when somebody is engaging in sin and living out some sort of sin. And it doesn't just have to be a sin of sexuality. There's all types of sins that can fall into this category. Yeah, I definitely think that sin is where it gets trickier. But I also think this is where we can kind of embrace the logic of people we're trying to reach and Hmm. use it to meet them in meaningful ways. Like I think about in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. Hmm. Mars Hill. He's trying. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to talk Hmm. to them about God. And he's like, he sees all their idols, but begins with, I perceive you're spiritual. So let's talk about spirituality and kind of jumps off of the statue they had of to the unknown God. And he's like, I'll tell you about that God. And then he preaches the God of the Bible. One of the things that they kept coming back to was your beliefs are acceptable if they're not hurting anyone. Hmm. And that's something where I think it gives us a lot of room to talk about sin Hmm. because sin hurts people. Sin hurts you. It hurts you. Exactly. It hurts your relationship with God. It hurts. it, It may not like it may not hurt in this way where you clearly identify the hurt and you know that you want to shrink back from it. Sometimes it's like this thrill that you want to keep running back to, but overall it hurts like in, in the same way that like if you exclusively eat cheeseburgers for every meal, you may enjoy it in the moment, but it is hurting you on this deeper level. If that is your whole diet you know, sin we can kind of use in that way of like, it's not that it hurts in this way that like being punched in the face hurts. We're like, oh, I immediately feel the consequence of that. But that I think is something that we can kind of hang on to and be like, your big thing is you want to avoid people being hurt. 
And yeah. what you are completely seeding to people is, but if you want to do a thing that hurts you, I can't get in the way of that. You haven't hurt anyone else yet, so I can't slow you down. Which is interesting because if we took that to more physical levels, you know, people really care today about mental health issues, as they should. I, I want to be part of that group that, that cares deeply about mental health issues. And with mental health issues, there is this big push today of find help before you need it. You know, find help before you may potentially put yourself in a situation where you would harm yourself or you might harm somebody else. You know, like we, we really care about do something before the hurt becomes too bad. Mm. And I think that we can say all those same things about sin. You know, sin is something wrong within us that will lead towards our hurt and the hurt of others. So by listening to Jesus and stepping in before that hurt has its opportunity to inflict its damage on others, we want to keep people from harming themselves and harming those around them. That's yeah, what yeah. the push against sin is really all about. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And I think that's a big part of the piece of fighting postmodernism is getting past this idea of, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's okay. Because it's exactly as you said, it hurts. Sometimes sin does hurt other people and you just don't realize it. It always hurts you and it always hurts your relationship with God. I think back to my time in stealing music, you know, pirating music and at the time, it very much felt like a victimless crime because I was like, I'm I'm mostly getting like Beatles music. Like Paul McCartney has a lot of money. Like he probably he, doesn't he's okay. need he probably doesn't need my ten bucks. So it, it almost felt like Robin Hood. You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, rob from the rich a little bit to feed poor little me who grew up listening to only Christian to feed me music. Music. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was both the Robin Hood and the poor that he was feeding in my mind. But even though in my mind it was different, like I wasn't like breaking into some widow's house and she just had like one little Beatles CD. My own, my only CD given to me on my birthday by my granddaddy. I don't know what that was. but That <laughs> CD is really old if your grandma's <laughs> grandfather gave it to her. He was a really hip uh, grandpa. He was, he was on the cutting edge of music. Uh, it was Paul McCartney. Of, it, yeah, yeah, there you go. But you know what I mean? It wasn't like I broke into someone's house and stole their only CD and left them with nothing. So in my mind, it's a victimless. It, it was a victimless crime at the time I was thinking about it. But it wasn't good for my soul because my soul deep down knew that stealing is wrong. And so it kept me up at night at times. There was times where I was sitting there and I knew like, oh, this is wrong. But everyone's doing it. But it's wrong. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, that's where that postmodernist thinking came in. And just because it's not hurting anybody doesn't mean it doesn't hurt your relationship with God. And it's not like God is like this passive aggressive, like, oh, so you're going to disobey me? Well, then I'm going to make our relationship a living hell. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. Like, it's not that. It's There is something, I believe, metaphysical, spiritual that happens to our souls when we sin. And it's not it's not good for us. It's poison. It's basically poison. Any sin, <laughs> any sin in our life is is poisonous. And and Jesus is the antidote, but it's not like a, a one shot and then you're done, you know, and then there's, you know, you can just do whatever you want. Any sin is going to, is going to bring some of that poison back in. And that's why we need to continue to go to Jesus and confess 
and repent, he's trying to lead us away from that poison. And so I look at like the sexuality thing and like, let's just, again, let's think about like straight couples. Like, so if you're on the street corner trying to do like a street witnessing thing and you're talking to couples and let's say you run into a straight couple that's living together. So one thing people are going to go to all the time is like, well, like sex before marriage, cohabitation before marriage. Like here's all these statistics for like why it's wrong. Here, here's an example of like, you know, you're talking to the girl and it's like so many guys are just using girls and they're going to leave them and, and there's going to be brokenness in your life from this and all this kind of stuff. And that can be true. Like we can use worst case scenarios when we're talking to people. And, 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 and sometimes those can be true. But then what do you say to like the couple where they're like, oh, no, like we're a super committed couple. Like we've been together for 10 years. We love each other. We're committed to one another. Like we are monogamous. Like we're not sleeping. Like this isn't an open relationship. We're just not married. We're just living together and having sex. Like in, in our mind, this doesn't hurt anybody. So what do you what do you say to them? Like, how do you explain to them the concept of truth and sin and right or wrong when in their mind, it's just like. Why does God care so much about this? Yeah, that's that's definitely where it gets trickier. And that's where we need to ask questions of the question. What do we mean by not hurting anyone? You know, we think of not hurting anyone as we're not impinging on anyone's freedom. Yeah. We're not causing physical or emotional distress to others in any reasonable way. We're not manding things of others. And, and we think of as long as we've avoided those things, we haven't harmed people. But that assumes that the number one thing that people should be is free and independent and not impinged on by anyone around them. Mm. When I look at the Bible, the number one thing that people should be is disciples of Jesus, mm. followers of Jesus's way, willing subjects in his kingdom, to, to put it in a, a stronger way. That is what humans are meant to be. Mm. Anything that pulls us away from that is harming us according to that definition. Mm. So if I live in a way where my soul is meant to run on, like I, I'm a pack animal like a dog, you know, like they talk about dogs need structure in a home. They need to be, they need to know where they fit into the pack. And without that, they just kind of lose their bearings. I, as a person, I am a pack animal. I am meant to be submissive to Jesus, my pack leader. When I cast that off, I am hurting myself because I am not living the way that I am meant to live. I am pushing away something that will lead to deeper, greater satisfaction in my life. It's kind of like if you fill your car with, you know, let's say your car takes like 10 gallons of gasoline. If you put, you know, 1% Gatorade in there, mm. it's probably fine. You know, like it's, your car's going to run, I think. I don't know. I have no idea how sensitive car engines are. <laughs> I'm a I'm a manly man, as you can tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I, it's probably going to be okay. Like, you probably won't notice anything immediately. You didn't do it to anyone else's car. Mm. But that's not the way the car is meant to run. Mm. That That is causing slow decay. That is causing slow, often unseen harm because it's mm. not the way that this machine was meant to run. Mm. So instead of saying it doesn't seem like it's hurting anyone, hurt only means something if you can understand how the machine is actually meant to run. Mm. That's good. 
That's really good. I like that. I, I think only things I would add would be kind of two two different ways of looking at sin. And I think there's truth to both of them. You can tell me whether or not you agree. I think the first way of looking at it comes from this idea of of love and respect for a father. So if God's our father, he has rules. Some of those rules are for our protection. Like don't run into the fireplace. I'm about to have my first kid. I don't want him to ever run into a fireplace. It's not because I don't think fire, like it's not because I think fire is evil, but I know fire can burn him if he runs into it. So there's some rules where it's like, dude, I know that fire looks so awesome, but I don't want you to run into it because I really don't want you to get hurt. I love the idea of this being your number one house rule. Like house rule number one, we don't run into fire. It's like on the door when you come inside the house, like just Mm -hmm. a list of there are (laughs) 10 rules and they're all just like fire based. I just imagine like a fireman, like a dad who's a fireman. And it's like, these are my 10 house rules. Don't run into the fireplace. Don't play with fire. Don't light things on fire. He's like scarred from all the fires he's seen. He's like, we will never have a fire in this house. I've derailed this illustration. What I'm trying to say is, you know, so, so father, you love him. You respect him. He has rules. Some of them are for protection and other things are just because he has preferences where he's like, this is how I want things to be. And out of this love and respect relation for him, you're going to submit to that. And I think when it comes to God's rules, I can't say necessarily which ones are definitively the ones where he's trying to protect us from hurt and which ones are just his preferences. But I want to have that level of respect for him where I'm going to be like, okay, I, I am a finite human. I cannot see all of the crazy mechanics going on behind the scenes of the world. I'm going to trust that you know which things are dangerous for me and which things are not. I'm going to trust that you know that me pirating music is damaging to my soul, even though for me, I can see no no immediate consequences. So that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it though, and this is, I think there's truth to what I just said, but th- this is something that for, for me over the past years has been much more compelling than just that alone. I really do see sin as a destructive, poisonous, evil force. And so any sin, like think about, the Garden of Eden, you got that apple. Like, I don't know exactly what that apple did. Like, it was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, I can't even begin to imagine, like, what spiritual, crazy, metaphysical things happened when they ate that. I do know that one simple act of disobedience was enough to doom the entire world. And I don't think it's as simple as God being like, oh, you disobeyed me? You're doomed, you know? <laughs> like like Thanos snapping his finger and just, like, all of a sudden causing, like, all of this. Like, I, I that's, that's, that's not the God that I see in the Bible. I think there's something else going on. There's this destructive force behind it all. And God is trying so he's trying so much to protect us from it, to keep us from it. Like things that we see as sin where it's like, that's not that big a deal. And he's like, oh no, it is like, it is a huge deal. Like all sin, like it, it is formulated by the enemy of your soul trying to destroy you. And it's packaged in a way to look like it's not that big a deal. And that's why every day, all of us are tempted in different ways to give in to little things that seem like they're not that big a deal, but to God, it does seem like a big deal. So I'd look at that couple who's living together in in a fully committed relationship where they're like, why is this such a big deal? And I'd be like, you need to understand trying to live in disobedience to God. It's like going underwater without an air supply, like without the scuba tank. And for a while, it seems awesome and harmless. It's like, this is great. Water feels good. There's fish down here. It's really interesting. There's things to explore. 
But if you don't have that connection to that air supply and you're just trying to go it alone, eventually you will die. And that's what he said to Adam and Eve. Like, you, you will eat this tree and you will die. Did, he, did Adam die? Adam lived longer than you and I will ever live on this earth. He was like in his 800s when he died or something. But he eventually did die. And if he didn't have a relationship with God, with Yahweh, there, there's a spiritual death that comes after. And so that, I don't know if any of this makes sense. If you're listening, if you're listening and this doesn't make sense or it does, maybe send me an email, Aaron Salvato at calvarychapel.com. I'd love to know your thoughts on this, but those are two perspectives on sin. And that's why I think it's important for us to keep that in mind when we say it doesn't hurt anybody. No, it does. Like it hurts, it hurts your soul. It hurts your relationship with God. It's not God being passive aggressive and giving you the cold shoulder. It's literally like you're ingesting a poison that is separating you from him when you sin. Yeah, I think the only piece in that that I would want to try to flesh out a little bit more. Yeah, I don't like the idea of calling it some of God's commands are for protection and some of them are just his preferences. I get what you're driving at there. Like there are definitely things that my parents wanted me to follow because that's how they preferred the house to run. Hmm. But there's also an element of by keeping those things a certain way, it just kept one thing from cluttering the table in our relationship. You know, Hmm. they wouldn't end up being frustrated that, you know, the shoes were kept in this spot and then instead of that spot or when I think about God's commands, most of them, if not all of them, I'm not totally sure on that, but most, if not all, are about imitation. Mm. God's commands are an invitation to be like him. So often it's be like me. So when it comes to sexuality, give yourself away in committed relationship because Mm. that's how Mm. I give myself away. Mm. When it comes to how should you treat other people, be generous because I'm generous. When it comes to should you tell the truth, like, God is the God of all truth. Yes. Be honest. Don't lie. Don't try to make yourself look better than you are. It's not just like that God prefers these things, because I think a lot of times, like one of the fun things in marriage is you start learning like, oh, I just thought this is the way this thing was supposed to go. But that's just how it worked in my house, you know, and you start (laughs) like learning these ways in which you both had these these homes of different preferences and now you get to decide your own preferences and you Mm. decide them and things are fine. And I I think that if we call some of God's commands things that he prefers, we can begin to start looking at them and say like, oh, well, I prefer it a different way and maybe it won't be that big of a deal. Yeah. Whereas if it's like... That's why I was trying to say the second view is much more compelling to me Mm -hmm. where it's like there is something going on behind the scenes where when you are sinning, it might seem fine, but you're, it's like going out into space without the helmet, you know? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Yeah, that, that I totally agree with. I, mm. I definitely believe the decisions we make, each decision we make, is either teaching us life is better when I am reliant on God as king and leader, mm. or it is teaching us I should be my own king. Mm. I should be my own leader. And small decisions have a way of building into big decisions. And I've definitely, I'm sure that you can attest to this as well. I've seen the pattern before of people who find small things where it's like, oh, I can be disobedient in this area. And it teaches them slowly, life is fine when I pick and choose which commands of God I listen to. And then it goes all the way to deconstructing their faith 
or even wondering, is there a God at all? Yeah. You know, I, I think that we need to be careful about I, like agreeing with you. We need to be careful about what we're teaching ourselves in small decisions right. so that they lead us to the big decisions we actually want to make. Yeah, I think I think like I agree, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I think for me, like when I was talking about the whole preference thing, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm trying to I'm trying to self critique myself because I, I'm I'm looking. Who else at can m- you self critique? <laughs> that was dumb. I'm dumb. Um, that's another <laughs> that's another self critique. But yeah, uh, I, I was I'm trying to critique myself in a sense because. I have the tendency to want to have answers for everything and explanations for everything. So when, when there's a sin, you know, in, in someone's like, well, why, like, why does God, why does God get to say that this is wrong? My natural tendency is because I'm a questioner because I question everything because I'm, because I'm always looking for answers is to kind of be like, oh, well, let's, let's really think through like why this is sin and why it's harmful but at the end of the day, like, do I have enough faith in God to just be like, maybe God just wanted this to be the way things are. Like, maybe this is just how he set the world. And I feel like that's been a weakness I've had in my own theology at times has been to not give God that space to be God and make the rules necessarily and to want to have an answer for everything. Like I think about, you know, polygamy uh, and it's like, it's easy to look at the Old Testament and be like, well, God you know, really seem to give a lot of grace to Abraham and David and all these guys and let them have multiple wives. So like, why is it such a big deal? Like, why can't I have multiple wives? And then it's like, but then what, like, if you look at Genesis one and two and three, and you look at Adam and Eve, if you look at the hermeneutic of marriage throughout scripture, if you look at the new Testament, you can see the ideal that God laid out is one spouse, you know? So what I'm just saying is like, why do I want to explain that away and say, well, it's because God knows that once you add a second spouse, then the poison of sin enters in and destroys your relationship. And, and maybe a part of it is just like, this is how God wants the world to be. And so it's like, the, I want those, I want to live within those two tensions, I guess, where it's like, God can be God and make the rules and I can submit to those. But then I also understand that like, it's not just simply that where God's like, yeah, rules are rules. And if you break them, like, I'm going to straight up kill you. God is like, no, like you don't understand. Like when you disobey me, you are literally like tearing the fabric of your own personal universe apart and poisoning and corrupting your soul. Does that make sense? It does. Because where I think that's really helpful is it's a lot easier to obey the commands we understand. Mm. And it becomes more difficult to obey the commands we don't understand. Mm. And Mm. obedience is not based on understanding. It's based on trust. Mm. You know, I think about when I was a kid, I intellectually knew that if I ran into the street, I could be hit by a car. I just didn't believe it would happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just kind of believed that when I go into the street, like, it's going to be fine. It's no that'll big deal. To, that'll happen to other chumps, not me. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'll be fine. Like, how often does that actually happen? Like, how much are we really risking by running out into the street? So I didn't understand the whole point of that command, but I needed to learn to obey it anyway. Hmm. And it's easy to do it with something like that because you have to kind of look at someone with a limited perspective to be able to be like, hey, you don't get this, but don't worry. I do. I need you to just listen to me. Hmm. And there needs to be a willingness for us to do that with God. Like if we actually believe that God is infinite, that he Hmm. is the creator of all things, that Hmm. he has observed all of human history 
and these are the commands he's given us, then we have to also be willing to say, maybe this guy knows some more stuff than I do. And I should be willing to listen to that. Maybe we haven't evolved to the point where we're smarter than God. Not quite yet. (laughs) No, we're not there. Yeah. I don't believe we are. Yeah. And, and, and so I think once again, going back to the idea of like, how do we talk to postmodern thinkers? I think that the temptation for many within the church is to want to really lean into when you're talking to somebody who is confused about any sort of sin, race, sex, gender, you know, morality, right or wrong. And they've got a postmodern view. The temptation is to really lean into, hey, this is what God says. And if you don't get on board, like, mm-hmm. bro, you're going to hell. And, and I'm just, I just feel like that, that doesn't really reach people these days. And so I think even though elements of that could be true, I think that the Jesus way is to really bend over backwards to spend time with that person and try to understand why they think the way that they do and then hit them with the truth in love, hit them with the gospel, you know, primarily. And then even like sometimes like in that first encounter with somebody, you run into somebody on the street and they're openly living in sin in some way. Like maybe it's not your role to necessarily call them out on it on day one. Maybe it's to get them to Jesus and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. Like, do you have enough faith that if you were to convert somebody to Christ on the street today, but you didn't go through their entire life and ask them about every sin and then like try to convict them about every sin, do you not have faith that the Holy Spirit can do that job? Like, do you not have faith that they're going to encounter a lot more Christians than just you And it's going to be a process. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I still have sin that I deal with. Like, I am not perfect yet. And there's probably sin in my heart and life that I don't even, I'm not even fully aware of yet. And it's going to be a process of aging and and people who love Jesus coming alongside me and saying, hey, bro, I noticed this thing in you. Like, I noticed this kind of thing in your heart. And maybe you should pray about, you know, improving in that area. (laughs) And and I'm thankful for that. It's 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 the sanctification process, you know, so... I do think that a big part of salvation is turning and repenting from sins. But I also think that belief in Jesus and accepting of Jesus opens up that door for the Holy Spirit to begin that work of calling us completely out of our sins. Because every single one of us who's given our life to Jesus, like a big part of that was walking away from certain sins. But like I said, every single one of us still has sins that we're dealing with. And so I'm being repetitive, but that's where sanctification comes in. Yeah, ultimately, I really like that idea of growing confident that God has given me a limited role to play and he will figure out the other roles. Like when it comes to talking with postmodern people, we often really think we need to cure them of their postmodernism, quote unquote. We also need to turn them into Christians and we need to change the way they think about social issues. And that's a lot to accomplish in one conversation. And that is honestly a lot to accomplish in one year with someone like change (laughs) often happens really, really slowly. And it's okay that we play a small role and we make a small push. Like you don't have to cure someone completely from being a broken human. You will not do that. But we honor God by saying, I want to play a small role in this person's change. I want to be faithful to what opportunity is in front of me. And God, I believe you'll carry it the rest of the way. Mm. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.